Ecclesiastes 9 is where we are, written by King Solomon. Ecclesiastes 9, it's part of the wisdom literature. Solomon, known for his wisdom, it makes sense. Think of the Proverbs, he, he puts a lot of wisdom into there. Song of Solomon, we have one song that he's recorded out of the thousands that he wrote, and he imparts wisdom through that. And here we have Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, that's kind of what it stands for. Quoleth is another thing it's called. I don't. A lot of the writers like using that one thing because it makes them sound fancy. To me, it's just like, I don't understand that. But, but they also they call Solomon Quoleth, which is, which is kind of weird. I don't remember why. But it's a, Ecclesiastes is the preacher. He's late in life, and he's given us wisdom. He's, he's searched out some things. I, I, I Googled, I thought, what is wisdom? Let's see what Google says. Uh, common sense. Well, that, that's a pretty good understanding. Knowledge. Solomon uses it that way. He talks about uh, things that you've observed and learned in the world. He also talks about knowledge that you've learned. If we could take this knowledge we've learned from, some, from someone else and it saves us grief by learning from their mistakes, you know, that's wisdom, that's learning, it's education. You know, we'd have to go make the same dumb mistakes as they did. But it also said this in the definition, which I thought was pretty cool. It says, the ability to discern what is true, the ability to discern what is right, and the, bil- the ability to discern what was lasting. I'm like, that summarizes the outline of this book. You know, Solomon's wanting to know, is it just life on this earth? And if it is just life on this earth, why? And if it is just life on this earth, does it matter? Does, does the things we do matter? Is it just under the sun, is, is the term that he uses? Is this all there is? Or is there life after death? Is there everlasting life? Is there a right and a wrong? Is there a moral absolute? Our, our world faces these same questions, and so that's wisdom. He's wanting to impart some of that to us, uh, even here in the middle part of the book as he is fleshing some of these things out as he's, he's working on them. And so this is Solomon's quest to find what is true. If there's just this world, you know, he, he wants to know, is it just this world or is there an afterlife? That's part of his questioning. Um, that's the majority view is that there's just this world, right? That's the world in which you and I live in today. The, the, the common answer, the thing that you'll be taught in school, that our tax dollars will fund, that they'll tell you in college, that is on every TV program that is out there on Nova and Discover and the history and all this, that, that this is all there is. This world here and now while you're alive under the sun, this is it. There's nothing else. That's the majority view. Is that correct? I'll tell you no. The Bible says no, <laughs> that there's more, that there is life after death. But this is what the thinking that he has is, is that just under the sun is where he's trying to limit himself. And so he wants to know if I'm just under the sun, is there a right and wrong? The world wants to say no. The world will argue for that until you steal something in theirs. Then they'll say, hey, man, that was wrong. You know, but, but they like to kind of, in the philosophical realms, they'll, 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 they'll like to argue, but no, 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 there's no moral absolutes. There's nothing there. You can do what is right. You know, your right is your right. My right is my right until you cross the line. You know, and then you, if you do something against me. And they have this whole big trippy thing. But we know that there's a right. That's one of the arguments um, like Ray Comfort, you know, the street witnessing will use. It's like, we know there's a moral absolute. We know it is written on our heart. You know, the, the Bible argues for that. And so we think that it's there. So there are moral absolutes. There is a lawgiver. That's why the world wants to try to say that there is not. If there is a morally right and wrong thing, someone had to give that law. There must be an authority behind it. And boy, we don't want to have to be accountable to him. And so they try to do everything to, to dissuade that and say that it's not there. And so um, 
there is a lawgiver, we must abide them, we're going to give account to them, and so they don't want that. And so we try to do everything to convince ourselves that there is no lawgiver and we're not accountable to anybody. But we are, it's written on our heart, Romans 1 tells us so. Um, see, it was interesting when I googled and saw what was wisdom, that it said one of the parts of it was whether things were lasting or not. That, that things would be everlasting. Are there something that is everlasting? Is there eternity? That just within that question there that you would have that, what is wisdom? Searching for that which is everlasting. Searching for that which is eternal. Because there is eternal. There is eternity. That, that, that's Solomon's quest. Is there an eternity? And he always hints that it is. And when we know that he builds to that he is with our memory verse that we say. Because if there is something that is true and there is something that is right and there is something that lasts or is eternal... It changes the whole game, doesn't it? It changes everything that happens on this world. If there is right and wrong, if there is someone who gave us these laws, if there is an eternity, it would change how you live. It would change everything about society. It would change our world. That's Christianity. We come to that conclusion. It's when you come to that conclusion that you realize that there is a right and wrong, and that you're wrong, that you're a sinner, that you're a liar, that you're a th- that you've stolen something, that you've blasphemed the, the lawgiver, that you've you've broken all these ten commandments, you know, morally and, and spiritually. Do that. You you realize that man, I'm wrong. I'm in the wrong. I'm going to be held accountable unto him. You know, and he's the one who is true, and he's the one who is right, and he's the one who is just. That's when we come to the point where we need a savior. Then all of a sudden, like I need help, and then Jesus means so much to us. So we have. And true Christianity, that encounter with Jesus Christ, the one who rescues us, the one who redeems us, the one who purchases us, saves us from the law, saves us from the judgment that is to come, saves us from the lawgiver, God, by standing in the gap for us and, and taking the blame for us, taking the fall for us, our Savior that we can come to. So when we learn that truth that we're that sinner in need of a Savior, we learn that He is the righteous judge and that we have to then have Him stand in the gap for us. That boy, how, how do we please Him then? We want to live a life that is pleasing unto Him because He's stood in the gap for us if we repented and trusted in him. We want to live for eternity with him. We want him to be pleased with us. We want to live a life here and now that is satisfying to not only us, but but to him that pleases him because it makes this life matter all the more, knowing that it's going to influence the next life that comes. And so everything that we do, how we live, it all matters. It changes our whole viewpoint when we've had an encounter with Jesus Christ. It marks us. It makes us different. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we do. It changes our mentality about things. We don't live like it's under the sun. We live like we have an eternity to live. And so it changes how we do things. It changes how we do. And so it does matter. And Solomon is trying to give us little hints to that here. In chapter 9, we read the the good first six or seven verses last week, and and Solomon, in his reasoning, he says, he goes, man, if there's good and there's bad and there's a God, and it seems like he would favor the good, he goes, when I look at the world, it seems like the same things happen to everybody. Good things happen to bad people, bad things happen to good people, you know, it, it just doesn't seem like there's, the, the, the scales don't tip one way to another. If I'm observing all this, it sure seems like everything happens to everybody. He's like, is it just chance? Is it just reason? He said, matter of fact, it seems like a lot of times things favor the wicked. It seems like the wicked get by with it. It seems like the wicked prosper while, while the good guy trying to fight, you know, he pays for it and things happen to him. But he says, boy, through all that, you should still be righteous. He wrestles this more than once in the text that we've already been through. He seems like, even though it seems like all those things, he goes, I argue, stay righteous, be right, because it's going to make your life better, and it's going to help us in eternity. 
And so he argues for life. He says, choose life. Living is better than death. Living is better than, than, than and, and living in this life is good. So verse 4, he says, for to him that is joined to the living, there is hope. There's, there's hope when you're alive. There's hope. There's a chance. He says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, it's a, you know, a lion would be a great and wonderful thing we talked about. Um, unless he's dead. You know, then a, a dog is better. A dog is a better defense if the lion is dead. So he's saying life is better. Life is hope. While we have life, let's choose you know, to, to, to hope and, and, and choose to, to look for those things that might help us in success. And so um, we're going to pick up at verse 7. And so he's talked about living, he's talked about life, he's talked about it seems like events happen. So how do we live if it happens to the wicked and it happens on us? The Bible in the New Testament says it rains on the just and the unjust. God puts us all through the same things in life. Uh, I think so that we have a testimony so that we show things uh, to the lost. But in verse 7, he says here, it says, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, drink thy wine with a merry heart, for God now accepteth thy works. Um, I think he's... It's another one of those verses that, that are just encouraging you to live. Like if you're on this world and we're in this world and uh, he's saying if you're the, is just under the sun, say there's not an eternity, enjoy life. Um, if you're lost, enjoy life because this is as good as it gets. Well, for us, enjoy life and then enjoy eternity. You know, enjoy. He doesn't just want us to sit around saying, oh, it's just horrible. No, everything's life. He's just telling us to enjoy life. Eat with joy. Enjoy your food. Enjoy what you have. You know, eat with it. He's just talking about attitude. You know, there are studies out there that talk about that. You know, that you know, a happy attitude isn't contagious. You know, and being joyful. People want to be around them. You know, the the jokester at work helps for it to be a better working environment that way. I volunteer for that job. You know, we, we want to be the one to cause all that to keep people you know, on their toes and it kind of gives them. It's not just the doldrums. He's like, be joyful. Be that person. Be the happy person. That spark. And drink and be merry. He says, boy, you know, you know, enjoy what you have. Enjoy life. Paul argues it better from our perspective, and it's what we're used to. Let's hold your spot here and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Matter of fact, Paul is kind of the answer to what Paul or what, what Solomon is arguing about and wondering about. We have definitive answers in the New Testament for everything that Solomon ponders in the old. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, if you were going to label this chapter, it is labeled the resurrection chapter. It is labeled as the life after death chapter. He argues throughout this whole chapter that there's life after death. And the main point in it that he uses, he uses agriculture. They lived in an agricultural society. We live in an agricultural society. Uh, all you can look out a window can see there's corn. I think corn's all behind us. <laughs> corn or beans, something like that. And he uses that argument. It doesn't happen unless a seed dies. You know, we don't bury a seed, we plant a seed. And so a corn kernel, you take that one little kernel, and you take that one little thing, you plant it in the ground, and then life after that happens, right? That, that seed dies, it's in the ground, it's buried, and it springs forth life. And if you haven't stood down by that corn, I challenge you to do so. I'm 6'4". Ear corn is looking me in the eye. That is a big old stalk of corn out there. It is a transformed life from a little bitty tiny seed. It gets this big old body that springs all up, sometimes one ear, sometimes two ears, sometimes some weird thing on top, sometimes just a tassel. You get all these different things. We've got a little field of it. Life after death surrounds us. We live on it. Our economy is that. 
And the other people will be like, I wonder if there's life after death. So Paul takes that whole argument and says, it's around you everywhere. God calls very few people a fool, but one of them he called a fool was in a parable about the rich man who lived on a farm. He said, man, I have so much, I'm going to tear down my barns, I'm going to live forever. He says, you fool, you lived on eternity, and today you die, and you did not plan for it. Like you had all this around you telling you that there's life after death. So Paul argues that, and he talks about the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection of the dead, and he talks about all these different things proving the resurrection. And we're going to pick up at the end around verse 26. He says, the last enemy, so 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. He says that God's, you know, that Jesus Christ is the first fruit of those who sleep. He, he's the resurrection. He's the one who's going to give us life. He calls him the second Adam here. And the first Adam, we all die. And the second Adam, we all live. If we repent and trust and come in Christ, we're all ha- going to have life. In Adam, we all die because we are all his descendants. But boy, if we get into Jesus Christ's family, if we get adopted by him, we all live. And he promises that life for us. And he says that one day he'll do away with death, and we won't have to fear death anymore. We'll live forever, life everlasting. Verse 27, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he he is accepted, which do not put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued under him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. He's saying we're all going to serve the Father. Verse 29. Else why should they do that which is baptized for the dead, if the dead are, not, are raised not at all? Or why are they baptized for the dead? And even why stand ye in jeopardy, why what you stand in jeopardy in every hour? He's like, if there's not a resurrection, because people were arguing that there was not life after death, and he's saying, there's no resurrection after the dead, why, why do we worry about it? He goes, no, we worry about it because it is true, because Jesus Christ is the God of the living, he's not the God of the dead. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they're alive. Uh, he's not the God of them because they are dead, they're alive. And so he argues all this. He says here, why would I stand in jeopardy every hour if there was not life after death? If I did not believe, if I had not seen the risen Christ, Paul is arguing that point. And he was in jeopardy every hour. They stoned him, they persecuted him, they tried to kill him, they shipwrecked him, they throw, all these different things that happened to him. He says, because, because of his life, verse 31. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ. Jesus, our Lord, he says, I die daily. Paul says, I'm ready to die every day for, for Christ. And, and they tested him on that. Verse 32. If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, which he must have done. I must have thrown him in some arena and won. He says, what advantage is it of me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So Paul's whole argument here is the same as Solomon. He's like, if this life is all there is, live it up. Let's eat and drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die, and we'll just face it with, well, I had a good life. But Paul's also saying, he goes, I'm going to enjoy my life. He says, but I also know there's an eternity, and I'm going to live differently. I'm going to stand up and be abused because there's life after death, and your life depends on it, and I'm going to warn you. Greg Carney at the fair spends his money, stocks his booth with tracks because there's life after death. He says, and I'll let it cost me money to tell people that there's life after death. You can have everlasting life. You know, the people invest their time in this. You know, we give to the church because there's life after death. We want to warn them. We want to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. And so if not, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. This is as good as it gets. But we still should enjoy life knowing that there is an afterlife. And so, man, there's such a joy. There's such a, uh, an advantage of being a Christian. And so this is not as good as it gets. You know, it's going to get better. And for those of us who repent and trust in him, we have everything we've ever longed for we have in eternity. But Solomon's saying the same thing as him. He's like, man, if this is all there is, just enjoy what you got. And I hope that lasts, but it's not. It's not hell. All your good times in life are not going to satisfy you when you're in hell. Uh, if you go back, it's just 
But I think Solomon is trying to give us basic wisdom. He's like, even in the unknown, if we don't know, enjoy life. <clears throat> and that takes effort, you know, to enjoy life. It's, it's an attitude. It's an adjustment. So we should enjoy life. And so he's trying to give us good life. Uh, look at verse 8 in Ecclesiastes 9. So Ecclesiastes 9, verse 8. He goes on. He says, you know, first he tells us to eat and drink and be merry. Verse 8, he says, let thy garments be always white and let thy head lack no ointment. So he has a little caveat to that. So yeah, eat and enjoy, uh, eat, drink, be merry. But he says, here, let your garments always be white. That doesn't mean much to you and me. Um, in their day and age, it was a symbol of joy. It was a symbol, uh, you know, figure black clothes was mourning. We still have that today. You know, you wear, if you know, you wear black clothes. But white clothes meant joy and happiness. I mean, it was a festival. You know, went to a wedding, you wear white. You know, the bride's wearing white. You know, you would wear their white suits. Josephus, uh, who was the ancient historian, in his book, The Antiquities, as he told us from the Jewish perspective, you know, how they interpreted the Bible and what they thought and all these little extra things that they had that aren't included in the Scripture, said that Solomon was known for wearing white garments. You know, he was joyful. He was white. He wanted to be happy wherever he was. And, and so he's telling us that here. I wear white. You wear white. Be joyful. Wear white, happy clothes. Uh, that's why Jesus, when he gets in, in Matthew, he says, Consider Solomon. He's arrayed like the lilies of the field. A white, joyful flower that when you see him, makes you smile. Like, oh, look, they're white. They're joyful. I don't have them here. We had some up here at, at uh, Resurrection Sunday. But, you know, the, they're, they're white, and, white clothes. You know, they're, they're there. They're clean. They're not spotted. They're righteous. It's a symbol of righteousness. Jesus Christ, righteousness, wants to clothe us in his righteousness. And so he's saying, being joyful, live happy, but live righteously. Uh, have no regrets in that way. Don't, don't have anything that you violated the law. Live white. Live clean. Live a clean life. Live a law-abiding life. Live a, live a righteous life. Uh, nothing hanging over your head so that you can have some joy. It's not like, well, I hope I don't get caught. <laughs> no, it's like live a life where you don't have nothing to get caught for. You'll be open and, and outright. And so he says, you know, dress with white. You know, be, be joyful and let thy head lack no ointment. Um, we don't put ointment on our heads so much unless you get something wrong with you. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you choose to do that, it's fine. I'm saying it's usually like a, a sick ointment you have in that way. But uh, uh, the saying that we would have, we wouldn't say, oh, let your head be wrapped in ointment. We, we wouldn't say that. We would say bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Be awake and alert. You know, be, be out there enjoying the day, not in this lethargic slug sitting around. No, we're going to be awake and we're going to be active and we're going to be, you know, have some uh, enthusiasm. We're going to be you know, enjoying life, you know, in, in, investing in life, grabbing life as we do it. Uh, we're not going to be an Eeyore. Oh, bother. You know, everything's horrible. Everything's wrong. You know, don't be that guy. Don't be Debbie Downer. You know, don't be the old sad sack. We're going to be the, uh, uh, I can't remember his name now, but the don't worry, be happy. We're going to be that guy. You know, kind of have a little song on your lips and a, and a cheer in your heart and some acapella music if you beat on your chest. I don't, but you know, we're going to be that guy. That's what he's encouraging us to be. You know, he's encouraging us to be happy. And he gives us some more wisdom. Verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife. Uh, with thy wife, from whom thou lovest all the days of thy life, of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor, which thou hast taken under the sun. Stay with one wife. You know, don't seek pleasures everywhere. God's given you a wife. Enjoy that. You know, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy them. You know, don't have thousands. He had thousands. He's like, eh, that's not. You know, he talks about in Proverbs all this contentious women and, and how it all is. He goes, love your wife. Have joy with your wife. Enjoy your wife. Enjoy one another. Share life with somebody. Have a partner in life. Someone that you have a team together. You raise your family with. That you do these things. You know, there's something about, he's the one who gives us the, 
uh, the, 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 the two branded cord is stronger, you know, and three, you know, can't be broken, that we have God intertwined with our life and a husband and wife. He's like, that is the ultimate thing that we're to have. You know, a husband and wife and the Lord together working in something. There is a team that he can work with. That is why Satan attacks the family so vehemently. Angel, just remind us of that. These homes under attack where people are being told, you please yourself. You do what you want to do. Kids are a weight that burden you down. Release that burden. Shame on them. No, you have children. That's your joy. It's your responsibility. Die to yourself. You live that in front of the kids and saying, I give myself for you. I work so that you can live. I work so you can do that. Um, yeah, it's just a shame. But Satan attacks it. It changes it all around to make it a sad and depressing thing. Home should be a happy mom, a happy dad, you know, where life is there. If there's problems in life, we share it. We're open with the kids so they know what's going on, that they are aware, and how the Lord's going to work us through this, and the Lord's going to challenge it together. We're going to work, and we're going to work with the Lord, and we're going to honor Him in what we do. And it's going to be who we are. It's what we do. We honor the Lord. And we put Him first. It's, it's our family credo. It's what we do, that you establish that in them. So that's like these kids that they had a week to try to tell them that God is good all the time, that God is the provider. Trust Him. You know, that God is the one who is there for you. He's your El Shaddai. He's your El El Yon. He's all those things, all those names of God that Jordan came and told us about when he was here, saying, we're going to talk to the kids about the names of God. You know, how much more that means to hearing how that is a, an anchor for them to cling to in this horrible sea of life. We're to have that. We're to have a partner to share it with. And he says, enjoy them. Don't be seeking elsewhere. Don't be looking elsewhere. I remember something I read once. You know, the world always has something new they want you to want. You know, and for men, they always have the new starlet they want you to pursue. And, oh, here's the one you want. Here's the epitome. Your wife should be like this. And I, I read some, some in, in wisdom from a preacher once that said, remember, someone somewhere is sick of all her stuff. <laughs> you know, they all get divorced, right? They must not be the be-all, end-all that they're, the Satan wants to tell you to be. Love your wife. She loves you. She gives you what is husband. Women, love your husband. Don't be taking what the world is out there trying to pull the family apart. Cling to one another and, and don't buy the bait of, of all that's, that Satan does to pull us apart. Verse 10, he says, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Where there is no work, uh, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, uh, whither thou goest. And he's like saying, if this life is all there is, and when you're dead, you're dead. He's like, well, work hard when you're alive. Commit yourself to your craft. Learn something. Know it. Do it. Pursue it. Be good at it. You know, give yourself to the knowledge in it. Not just like, well, you know, enjoy what you do. If you don't enjoy what you do, find something you enjoy what you do. Learn it. Know it. Be your best at it. Be busy. Because you can live now. It says under his son thinking here, he's like saying if there's no work, and there's no device, that means uh, no reasoning, no thinking. There's no thinking. And I'm picturing Solomon standing there looking at a corpse. He's like, well, they're not working now. There's no thinking going on in there. There's no knowledge that is being processed, and there's no wisdom. He's not considering the soul. The soul lives on. And one day, Jesus Christ tells us that there'll be the body and the soul will reunite, and we'll live forever in a resurrected body. That, that, that union comes back, and we live forever in him. He's thinking just here now, looking at it. He's like, do stuff now, because you're going to be dead. That's not bad advice. Do something. You know? That's a good advice for Christians, too. Do something. I can't remember what preacher I can accredit it to. But I'm going to say it was Bob Jones, but no, it's Charles Spurgeon. I remember now. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He had uh, this advice for Christians. Do something, do something, do something. It's like pretty short and simple. He was a man of many words, but uh, boy, he could put it down simple for you. Do something. God can never use what you were going to do tomorrow. 
He's got you here and now. Do what you can do today. We can plan for tomorrow and have great schemes in that way. But do something now. He wants us to be active. He wants us to be lively. He wants us to be busy about the master's business. We're to be a servant that is working, a servant that is watching, a serving that is waiting. He wants that of us. And so we should stay busy in that way. And so he wants us to. And so this, under the sun thinking, you know, it's short-sighted. Uh, but boy, when we apply it to Christianity, it works. Live in this life. Enjoy this life. Do the work of this life. It's going to matter for eternity. Um, See, because he's wrong. He's, he's wrong about this thinking that, boy, once they're dead, they're dead. Enjoy what you got. Because Christians live forever. So we get to work for Christ and serve him. The lost don't. The only thing they have looked forward to is misery, regret. Because in the grave, the Bible tells us they have their memory and they'll regret everything they didn't do. They'll regret everything that they did. The Bible always describes hell as a place of torments, not torture. Torture is something that is inflicted on you. Torment is something inflicted on yourself. Why didn't I accept Jesus Christ? Why didn't I do something for Him? Why didn't I repent and trust Him? Why didn't I take that track? track? Why did I do this? Why didn't I raise my kids? Why didn't I? A life of that for eternity. That's hell. All the missed opportunities. So we're just not live with regret. So Solomon pauses here after thinking about death, and I think as he's stared into a corpse and thought about it, and he's like, I know there must be life after He's hinted at it before uh, throughout this text. And I think he's thinking about it here. And I think he's reflecting on life being over and thinking about afterlife. And he wonders if there aren't hints in our world that kind of tease us that there's more. That there's something going on behind the scenes. If things work the way that we think they do, then why don't they work the way we think they do? And if things are supposed to work the way we say they do, why don't they work the way they they, they say that they should? Or if things... Are, are supposed to work the way that we are taught. Why don't things work the way that they, we are taught? And here's, you know, they, they, they don't. Are there other influences behind the scenes that are moving and working trying to get us to say, hey, wait a minute. And here's the example that he uses, verse 11. He says, I returned and I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen them to us all. He comes to the conclusion that things happen. I think that there's more. He says here that logic would say, and the world would say, the fastest person wins the race. You know, we have Olympics. We have these things. You know, the fastest person wins. Yet we got that old fable, right? The tortoise and the hare. Fastest don't always win. Sometimes perseverance wins. Sometimes strategy wins. Sometimes heart wins out over skill and speed and all those things. Like there's something that goes on behind the scenes. But logic should say the fastest always win. doesn't always work. Is there something moving around behind? The strength should always go, or the battle should always go to the strong. Makes strongest survive. We're told that. We're taught that. It's the theory. It's the thing our culture is built on. Strongest, the strongest survive. You know, survival of the fittest. Who was stronger, David or Goliath? Goliath. David won. Shouldn't that put a little bit of weight in it? How does that work? You know, that, that shouldn't have been that way. It should always be odds in this favor. Wisdom. It seems like the scientists and the smart people and the ones who are out there working, trying to defeat diseases and making our technology, those should be the richest people in the world, the ones who are trying to better society. No, we give it to a rock star because rock stars know everything. You know, we give it to someone who can sing. We give it to someone who acts like someone else. Or we'll give it to a rapper, you know, because they got all the answers and and rhyme, I guess. We'll give it to you know, politicians. I don't know. We give it to all these weird different places. It should go to the skilled. We don't give it to the wisest people. We just give it to people that we like or people that Satan likes. I don't know. 
Or the skilled people should always be the one who are really achieving and getting ahead, but it's not always that way. It's not the most skilled. It's the one who probably markets the best, you know, the huckster that gets it more than the higher skilled quality product. You know, and you would think the skilled person would always win, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes, you know, somebody else wins where, like, say it was luck or a fluke shot or, you know. Or is there something else? Is there something they're trying to tell us what they tell you is not right? You know, so we have these big things. Um, there's someone messing with all this, trying to get our attention. It's in our stories, right? Where the little guy wins. It's the movies, it's the books, it's everything that we read, it's the episodes we watch on TV. The upset, you know, it's the stories that we still talk about. The miracle on ice, the American hockey team defeats the mighty Russians. You know, it's like, oh, how that's happened? It was a miracle. Shouldn't have happened. On the books, it wasn't supposed to happen. No way it's supposed to happen. But it happened, you know, and we're like, man, I guess we hope the little guy sometimes wins. You know, the Hail Mary at the end of the football game when it's unbeatable odds or the, the three-point shot that should not go in, you know, from other spots that tends the game. You know, the buzzer's been beat and we get all the... We watch all these things because we're rooting for that. We're wanting that. It makes the highlight real. So a little hint saying that, ah, things don't go as the world has all systematically planned out. Sometimes that miracle happens, you know. Sometimes something happens to try to get our attention. And under the sun thinking... It should be methodical, it should be mathematical, strong win, you know, the mighty survive, you know, the, this guy gets this. It doesn't, I think it's to make, I guess, wake us up enough to yearn for that enough to say, is there hope for me? I'm the little guy. And he's saying, yeah, there is. There's a chance for you. It's in my son, Jesus Christ. Uh, he says here in verse 12, he says, For man also knoweth not his time, as the fishes are taken in an evil net, and as the birds are caught up in a snare, so are the sons of men. Snared in the evil time when they fall suddenly upon them. He's like, death's coming quick. We're in the middle of everything. He's saying, man, death can just come upon you. Logic and reason. At first, you kind of think of this verse as like, well, all of a sudden you talk about death again. But it fits right in with the, with the race that's, that says that, you know, that the fastest, the, the race isn't always to the swift or the battle's not always to the strong. Death should only come to the elderly, right? But it doesn't. Hits everybody at all ages. It'll stop everybody in their tracks. It'll be like, why? Why does a child drown? You know, why does a drunk driver walk away? Why, and we look at all these things, and it just attaches so many lies. Our son Joel was just, as we spent some time talking to him, he was just telling us about the stuff that made him quit, being EMT. Children, sick and dying. Things that were just wrong. Things that remind us that there's an enemy out there. And that death is the enemy. We need to be aware of it. We need to try to run from it. We need to run to the escape. And the escape is Jesus Christ. And so yeah, he's here. I think he's pondering that too. He's like, man, even in that, even in death, we're not aware of it. And it comes and it shows us that we're not ever prepared. And when you're thinking like, oh, I've got so many more years to live. It doesn't go as we planned. As the world tells us, save for retirement. You'll get lived to be 85. Guaranteed? No. Verse 13 says, this is wisdom that I have seen also under the sun. And it seemeth great unto me. There was a little city, and he gives us a story. And there are a few men within it. And there came a great king against it, and he besieged it. And he built a great bulwarks against it. We've studied that when we were studying First and Second Kings. This was the, the way they did battle. They would come to a city. They would camp up around it. They would stop all food and water from going in. They would starve them out. They'd overtake the city. So this little city is being besieged by this great king. Hopeless. Always supposed to win, right? The great king is going to win. He is starving them out. Verse 15. Now there was found in it a poor and a wise man, and he in his wisdom delivered the city, yet no man remembered that same poor man. 
He's like, this city was lost. And you would think it would be the rich, wise ruler who comes with the answer. Or you think it would be the strong, young, mighty men who go out and perform some great deed of heroism and defeat the king and break a hole in the line and they get the supplies in and the city wins. It's not. It's the guy you don't expect. It's the poor guy who has wisdom. And he comes humbly to the king, gives him the answer to the point where Solomon is astonished by this man's wisdom. I wish he had told us what it was, but he doesn't. But he says, he gives this man, gives the city wisdom, and they survive. And you would think, then this man would be rewarded. He would get the golden ring on his finger. He would get the place where he's set up. And they don't even remember his name. Well, the trouble's gone. Forget this guy. He was poor. He had nothing. We gave him a stake. He's better than he was. And he's like, it's not right. And just the, the whole world not being right should be enough for us to say, there must be more. There must be a right. There must be an answer. I think this is the hints that God has in this world to say, look at me. I'm here. I can make things right. I'm the one who makes all things new. I'm the one who set things as it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. Verse uh, 16, he said, Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. It is. You know, the old man's wisdom beat a whole army out there versus the young and mighty. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. They don't hear it. Verse 17, the words of a wise man are heard in quiet more than the cry of him that rules among the fools. The fools have the big loud voice. The fools have the narrative. If I was to ask you what's the number one important thing in the world today, according to our news media, you'd probably say the Russian collusion. But have you seen the polls? Gallup did a poll. It did not even rate enough to give it a number on the Americans' minds. No one in America cares. No one in America believes it. But boy, they want us to believe it. They're shoving it down our throat because they're trying to tell us. He's saying, see, it's that still small voice. It's the common sense that rules and wins. Don't always say, believe what they are shoving down your throat, telling you that the strong survive evolution is it. Most America doesn't believe it because we have a foundation knowing that there is a God. He's saying, don't buy the lie that they are promoting you. Listen to the still small voice. Keep speaking wisdom and truth it gets through they'll listen they will hear he says that be the wisdom it'll be heard in the quiet they'll reason within themselves just that one little answer that we give to say and turn their hearts toward the bible turn their hearts toward the lord to have them think about the wisdom that is astonishment to them because there's a way that seems right unto man but is a way that is death way unto death jesus christ is a way that's contrary to that that is life and so we're to give them that and there's verse 18 he says wisdom is better than a weapon of war but one sinner destroyeth much good. He's saying you can have a wise guy who can build a whole big city and it can be a wonderful thing, and one idiot can blow it all up. <laughs> one poor sinner can destroy the whole thing. Example, we were in a perfect garden state with God coming down and meeting with mankind. One sinner plunged the world into sin, right? But hallelujah, one Savior can change it all. If you but repent and trust in him, he'll change your whole view on all this. You're, not only, you're no longer living just under the sun. You're no longer just living for this life. You're no longer living without a purpose. You're no longer living just thinking that here and now is all there is. You're no longer living as if there is no hope. Because you repent and trust in Jesus Christ and the finished work of him, we have a Savior. We become a part of the second Adam that we, I hinted to in 1 Corinthians 15. You could go read it. But we have <coughs> everlasting life in him if we repent and trust in him. We have this life that um, is everlasting. There is that answer In the one man, just like one man can ruin it all, one man fixes it all. And so Solomon asks all these questions, but we live in the blessed time where we have the conclusion. The book is complete. 
We know that Jesus Christ did come. He did provide the way of escape. We do know that there's life after death because Jesus Christ, it would seem like death always wins. When we look at it, you know, the statistics are one out of one. Everyone dies. You know, I think it's like 150,000 people a day. You know, there's an ultimate statistic we are all going to be a part of. It seems like death always wins. No one gets up. Except for once, right? One time, he defeated death in the grave. And he promises us, if we repent and trust in him, we too will live again. We can have everlasting life. And so Solomon's under the world thinking it is hopeless. It is vanity. It all does seem empty. But under Jesus Christ, we have life. And we have life worth living. And we can enjoy this life. And we have a life to enjoy it thereafter. And we can take as many people with us as we want. If we just tell them to repent and trust in him, we're to reason with them, give them these well-reasoned answers. And Solomon has told us some of that, that there is those little peaks in those stories, those stories that hint to us that there is something else going on, that we can use that. We can use everything in the news media. Um, talking with a guy this week, he was saying, you know, about um, life. You know, the, the media is all up in arms about these poor children who get separated from their parents at the border. Oh, it's the worst thing we could do as we kill millions a day. Do not kill about that poor baby and his mother? Do we don't care about separating them forever from eternity? We have opportunities around us. We just look for it in, in Christ that we can say, shame on you. This is wrong. Here's what is right. You are saying what is right, but in the wrong way. We can use everything in this world to try to apply it, to point them towards eternity. And so we're to be awake and alert to it. I'm thankful for Solomon putting that for us here today to kind of arm our tool belts, to keep it in our pocket, to be able to use in the day of witness. And thank God that we have hope. Thank God that we have Jesus Christ who's born, uh, who's rose from the dead and given us everlasting life if we but repent and trust in him.